Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second episode of uh, KSC Talks. I'm Benjamin Hildenstock, Senior Economist at KSC Institute and your host for this conversation. As we continue to engage with the most important economic and political issues of our time, I'm excited to welcome today's guest, someone who has researched the topic of sanctions extensively and who also participates actively in the policy debate in Washington, D.C., I'm honored to introduce Charles Litchfield, uh, Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomics Center, whose work on the sanctions regime and its effectiveness has been a critical contribution to the debate. Uh, together, we will delve into several topics today, among them uh, the latest uh, economic developments in Russia, uh, Washington's view on sanctions, the Russian policy response to Western measures, and the future of the Kremlin's frozen assets. We welcome any questions uh, you may have in the audience. You can submit them through the chat window. Uh, without further ado, now let's dive into our discussion. Welcome again, Charles, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us on KSE Talks. Well, thanks very much for having me, Ben. Uh, I'm particularly happy to be participating uh, in this conversation. I do take part in uh, regular conversations, but this one's a particular pleasure for me, uh, and I'm a big fan of Keep School of Economics. Very glad to hear that, uh, indeed. Uh, now, uh, in the in the first uh, podcast, uh, KSC Talks, uh, my colleague Alina Rybakova and her guests talked about a wide variety of issues. Uh, so maybe you could start us off with uh, what you consider are the the key recent macro developments in Russia, essentially since we uh, we had the first episode. Uh, thanks. I should say as a preamble that uh, that was an excellent episode and I agree with uh, most everything that was said. Um, uh, we have agreed, Ben, to try and make this a slightly different episode or at least to share some different information to what listeners will have heard in the first. Um, there haven't been that many developments, um, some on the data side. Um, we can go into some of the things that were that were um, that be released uh, or the, the sort of end of the experiment with Glasnost uh, on data that we were still in when Alina and Agat had that conversation. But the basic point is um, that uh, the Russian economy was shrinking in the first quarter, and there's some evidence that it is no longer shrinking. Um, I don't think this is necessarily to do with uh, demand for Russian exports. I think it's just a slight recovery for in consumer demand for Russia. I think the outlook for GDP this year is still under debate. Um, you will have analysts within Russia um, the sort of consensus is moving in a slightly more optimistic for Russia direction um, of GDP growth between anywhere between 0.1, 0.8 positive um, percent. Um, I still think there might be a slight recession this year. But anyway, the, the for the first quarter, the figures were really quite bad, um, mainly to do with much smaller um, oil and gas uh, income. Uh, and now um, they seem to have slightly turned a corner. Although my opinion is that um, Russia may still uh, experience negative GDP growth in 2023. Uh, the other development that is really very sort of macro fits on the same um, pedestal as GDP figures is, of course, inflation. Uh, and here, year-on-year um, -year inflation has fallen uh, dramatically. Uh, the reason for that is obvious. Um, the one-year anniversary of the fully-fledged invasion of Ukraine and the consequent um, effects on Russia's economy and now more than one year behind us. And so the year-on-year -year inflation figures are much lower. Um, interestingly, and I think we'll come back to this in this episode, um, the government and the Russian Central Bank are still extremely concerned about inflation. And there's evidence 
everywhere throughout their decision making that inflation is one of their main concerns, which is surprising given that uh, in June this year, or maybe may, maybe I'm talking about the May figure, excuse me, um, year on year inflation was just 2.3%. Uh, it had been above 10% only a few months previously. And yet, uh, a lot of their decisions appear to be guided by a concern about inflation coming back, uh, not least the decision to keep um, interest rates at 7.5% instead of dropping them further. Thank, thank you very much for uh, for setting up uh, essentially the, this conversation. Russ, maybe can I ask you a little bit more about the fiscal picture, which, of course, from the perspective of the Sanctions Coalition's objective to bring the war uh, in Ukraine uh, to, to a swift end uh, is very important because it represents Russia's ability to pay for this war. What have you been seeing uh, in, the, in the fiscal figures uh, recently and where do you think uh, Russian budget deficit is heading this year? No, so I really, I really think inflation and uh, the deficit um, are very important indicators for us to look at for those of us who, who want uh, the Russian economy to, to fail to the extent that they can no longer wage the war against Ukraine. Um, and generally, I think these are the, the some of the better indicators to look at rather than the exchange rate or, or GDP even. Um, so the deficit has become an interest of mine and I think most sanctions observers um, because measures to limit Russia's export income uh, seem to be working to an extent, and therefore this is a sort of potential avenue for sanctions to create some sort of an effect. And we'll come back to the fact that it's not working fast enough. Um, why does there seem to be a, a problem here and why is the deficit a good indicator? Um, last year, in 2022, uh, Russia had a record uh, income in oil and gas exports uh, because of the speculation trading on the markets, which took prices very high and Russia could take advantage of that. Prices have come down again, but Russia is also selling lower volumes out of a combination of self-inflicted pain. They decided no longer to send gas to Europe. Um, and also our Western sanctions policies, which are diversifying our dependency on Russian gas and oil away from Russia to other sources. Um, again, we could disagree on whether this is going fast enough, but there is a very remarkable effect, especially in what Europe is buying, but also other destinations. The UK and the US no longer buy any um, uh, oil and gas directly from Russia. Um, Russia, Russia has lower income. Russia is also spending much more on the war effort. And this has uh, plunged Russia both in 2022 and so far in 2023 uh, into a fiscal deficit. Um, they expected a fiscal deficit this year. But one of the most striking figures you could look at and point at uh, for the beginning of this year is that for the whole of the year, they had planned uh, a deficit in a sort of three to 3.5 trillion rubles. They were already at 117% of that deficit by the end of April. These figures are available on the website of the Russian Ministry of Finance. You can even go into quite a lot of detail on what they're spending it on. Um, but being at 117% of your planned deficit at the end of April of the year, one third through, uh, is not evidence of uh, sound or successful fiscal management. Um, and uh, I think uh, we could all agree on that, at least. Um, how are they funding this deficit? And I think this provides another indication about their concerns about inflation and other matters. Um, there are two levers essentially that they have now that they've been cut off from uh, international financial markets and the Russian government, the Russian state can no longer borrow internationally. Uh, they have their national welfare fund, uh, which is um, the liquid part of which is in gold and yuan. Um, so they can sell part of that 
to the Russian Central Bank. That increases the reserves of the Russian Central Bank, but in exchange, the Russian Central Bank provides rubles, which can then be sold, which can then be spent. Um, they've used that very sparingly so far. I think in, by the end of April, only 13% of the total deficit was covered through that means. Although it's covered quite a lot in Western press, it didn't actually represent a big amount of the deficit. Another lever is uh, borrowing domestically, issuing bonds. Uh, this has been reasonably successful since they started issuing bonds again in a, in a big way in October. But every single time, the, or the popularity of the auctions is going down. So you can see that the Russian banking system initially likes this opportunity. They can't invest abroad, uh, abroad anymore, and there's a yield to be had from uh, lending money to the Russian government. But they're doing that less and less. It's less and less attractive. Uh, that too did not cover the full deficit. So half of the deficit so far just came from essentially the current account of the Russian finance ministry. Um, those of you who followed um, the uh, shenanigans in the US uh, recently uh, will know that uh, you know the finance ministry has its own current account and it doesn't like to get that too close to zero in the case of a shock. And the US government got pretty close a few weeks ago and then there was a deal done on the debt ceiling. Um, this is similar. Instead of um, except there's no debt ceiling that it, that it constrains the work of the Russian government. But nonetheless, um, it is the finance ministry's current account which has been run down so far. So this took us up to the end of April. In May, uh, they weren't in a deficit, but nor were they in any great surplus. It was expected that in May they'd managed to get themselves into a surplus through exceptional taxes and deferred taxes on the oil and gas sector. In fact, it was just a neutral month. So they're still at 117% of their annual deficit. Uh, the expectation is they managed to claw back on a bit of that, or at least not go so much above the um, the in, initial deficit, the, initial, the initially planned deficit, um, at least no, not as much as the spending so far would suggest. Uh, but it's not looking very good, especially since this month was supposed to be a month where they would have a surplus. Thank you very much. So you mentioned that there is a, is a bit of an up and down, both in the revenues and expenditure side. So we see these fluctuating surpluses and, and deficits. How do, how do you look at these fluctuations? And maybe that can also, we can uh, kind of wrap in your, your previous comment about uh, data glasnost and how we actually look at uh, the data that, that Russian authorities are providing on the fiscal. Yeah. Um so there's, there's been some really good work done by uh, colleagues of mine um, in the think tank space who, are, who look at Russia. Uh, Manch, I'll mention Yanis Kluger of SWP in, in Germany, for instance, uh, who looked before me at just how complex um, the tax receipt system was becoming, uh, somewhat by design, because the Russian government um, wants to give itself the time to pick up on what oil and gas firms are doing and make sure it gets its fair share of the profits uh, that they are making. You would assume that oil and gas companies have complicated accounting um, and even more so under uh, the price cap, which I'm sure we'll come back to. So it's simply the case that the Russian government is giving itself the time to get an appropriate picture of what the profits are in oil and gas companies. And then we'll come back through um, it's rather flexible uh, tax receipts measure under the um, natural resources um, tax, um, and it will get its fair share of that. That's why they've been reasonably sanguine or optimistic about being able to pick up on some of the profits that they didn't get in, in Q1. But it also explains some of the fluctuations. What they receive, the percentage they take from the oil and gas sector one month does not tell us what percent they will take the next month. They're giving themselves the time and the flexibility to pick up what they believe is 
over the, on a year's basis their fair share. They're also discussing new taxes, including a tax on super profits, which doesn't apply um, to oil and gas companies, but applies to basically uh, all other firms. Uh, another funny exemption is that it doesn't apply to firms created since 2020. So basically, it's a means to go after firms that have existed for a long time, that are large, that aren't oil and gas companies, compare their profits from the pre-invasion, pre-COVID period, um, compare them to the profits today. And if the profits today are higher, uh, claim a bit, a bit of that delta. Um, you could claim, I mean, I'm not making myself the, the advocate for any logic in the Russian government or anything. I think people on knowing me and knowing I'm participating in this podcast will know um, that uh, what my opinions about the war, um, but trying to put myself in their shoes, um, they would simply be arguing to themselves that some firms are profiting from the sanctions, some firms are doing quite well from being the uh, alternative suppliers to um, supplies that can no longer be sourced from sanctions wielding countries. And it is fair, in inverted commas, for the Russian state to claim some of that profit. So that would explain a little bit more about the fluctuations. Um, you also asked me about this sort of data glasnost um, piece I had. Um, it was sort of a pretext for writing a rather um, general piece about the Russian economy. But my the reason I went with this glasnost line is that it is true that for about six weeks in, in March, April, there was a sense that um, those within the Russian government arguing in favor of releasing data and going back to the level of data transparency you would have had before the war had a few mini victories uh, on customs data, nothing too detailed, but at least the top line figures, um, on foreign uh, currency reserves and a breakdown without gold, uh, which we hadn't had before, but not a breakdown per currency, just what they had in FX. Um, so some um, not particularly significant, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, data releases, but enough for people like us, Ben, to get excited. Um, this didn't last very long. And uh, what I depicted as the end of this sort of data glass period was um, a decision to extend um, a grace period on uh, companies publishing their accounts. This was brought in right at the beginning of the war. And uh, companies do not have to, so publicly traded companies do not have to disclose uh, their accounts. The argument for this was somewhat puzzling. It came from so the argument to extend the grace period and therefore for the glasnost to end, so-called, So, if, if I may say, um, came from the finance minister. It was a rather strange argument that um, companies needed to protect themselves from the wrath of Western sanctions and therefore um, they shouldn't have to publish their accounts. Uh, but what's strange is that most publicly traded companies have voluntarily published their accounts uh, precisely to protect themselves from Western sanctions. So I use this opportunity to remind um, people who may be reading uh, what I write in, in Washington and elsewhere uh, of the names of the companies that have not been disclosing their accounts uh, so that uh, they paid particular attention to them. So my the, the whole point of the whole the whole my whole motivation for using using data glasnost was somewhat exaggerated i don't think we ever went through any great period of glasnost in march or april it was just a few small data sets that were enough for nerds to get excited about but that weren't particularly significant and then i somewhat arbitrarily used the extension of this grace period as the end of data glasnost but i do think the point stands about there being a debate within uh, the russian um, government between shall we say economic technocrats and the kremlin on the level of transparency that is needed. And the motivations for this debate or the arguments behind them, I think are quite interesting. Um, Yanis, who I've already mentioned, has the best theory on this. 
that um, the those who want the data to be as transparent as possible um, are doing so uh, partly because that's how they operate and always have, but also because it defends them against sort of deals being imposed from the top. Um, if you have a, a, a basis of data that is out there for everyone to see, um, there is an argument against giving healthy companies subsidies when they don't deserve them. There is an argument in favor of support for certain sectors, which perhaps um, are losing some of their funding because uh, the Kremlin is trying to find, fund the domestic crackdown and the war effort. So a, a sort of common basis of data is something that some people in the Russian government want, and then fighting against them, and I think prevailing for the moment, are those who, who don't want to release uh, as much data. Thank you very much. I'm glad you mentioned the, the economic technocrats, so to speak, because I wanted to ask you a somewhat broader question about uh, Russia's policy response. Uh, maybe starting with, with this one, how, how would you uh, evaluate uh, the economic management, both by the CBR, but also by others in the Russian government uh, since the start of the full scale invasion uh, more than yeah, almost one and a half years ago now? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, it's been uh, competent and um, has allowed Russia to withstand shocks, which may otherwise have made it difficult uh, to continue funding this war effort and uh, buying and selling um, goods, mainly not so many services, buying and selling goods um, from non-aligned countries. Um, this isn't um, any sort of recognition of um, uh, whether, whether what they're doing is morally right, I believe it to be entirely wrong. And uh, I think it's entirely justified that the likes of Nebulina, um, Yudayeva, so um, uh, decision makers at the central bank, are now sanctioned in the US. It took a little while. Um, and I think there is, um, you know, you wouldn't hear this from a US government official, but in, in think tank land in DC, there was a slight sort of separation in people's minds. I would even admit to that, having that had that sort of separation in my mind at the beginning of the war between the Kremlin and uh, the central bank authorities. I had followed them for some time. I thought they were pretty competent. I was sort of, sort of a fan of their of, the, of some of the decisions they'd taken purely in the realm of economic management. And so I think it took a little time for the DC think tank community to adapt to the fact that it was their competence and their competent response, which was making it easier for Russia to wage this um, illegal war. And therefore, it is entirely justified for them to be on the sanctions lists. Um, so unfortunately, it has been competent. Does not mean that uh, Russia can go on forever like this. Um, we've talked about the deficit and uh, the means they have to cover that deficit, which are finite. Um, even within what the central bank has done, there are trade-offs. Um, so in the short term, uh, bringing in capital controls, which uh, Governor Nebulina said she'd never do. Um, in the short term, this has meant that the Russian financial system had enough liquidity in it. Uh, people had an incentive to keep their money in banks because there was a 20% interest rate to begin with. It's come down to 7.5%. Um, so that, I think, helped them withstand the initial shock. There was you know, speculation in Washington over whether there would be uh, a banking crisis, and, and there was not. Um, but there's a trade-off because in the long term, the fact that Russia has brought in capital controls, something they said they'd never do, means that the long-term investment prospects, I don't think from any Western countries, of course, but maybe from non-aligned countries, I think are, are dimmer. 
um, they will always remember that Russia brought in those capital controls. And it is still difficult. It's not just for individuals. It is still difficult for firms to get their capital out of Russia. That doesn't just apply to so-called naughty companies. This is, um, I think, a term that um, the prime minister of Russia used recently. So naughty companies being Western companies that want to leave. Um, but it's the case for all firms that it's a bit more difficult to remove their capital from Russia than before. So in the long term, uh, the prospects for Russia's uh, diversification are much dimmer, uh, not that they were particularly good in the first place. So if I understand you correctly, the, the central bank, which used to kind of follow this textbook approach to monetary policy, has already broken some of the taboos you said, or you phrased it the way they, they've done things that they said that it would never do. Um, what do you think we should expect to happen going forward? Are there any other taboos that uh, that may be broken and then maybe transitioning a little bit more to the fiscal side also, what kind of trade-offs is, uh, is the Russian government facing in terms of the budget? Should you know, war-related expenditures remain high? Should uh, energy uh, revenues continue to underperform? Under so? Yeah. Um, so first of all, what, what levers, uh, what, what further taboos could be, could be broken? Um, so I mentioned the capital controls were broken. You could even say that, um, a fiscal deficit is was something of a taboo. We're in a we're in a very different world now. Russia's waging this um, illegal war, and uh, that um, trumps priorities that President Putin might have had before. But one of his for a long time was was um, balanced budgets, uh, because this was seen as a sort of sovereignty, um, fortress Russia, a, a pillar of sovereignty in fortress Russia, fortress Russia. Um, it is now in a deficit, though not funded by any sort of uh, international borrowing. That is that Russia can't do that now. Um, but what taboos could be broken now? Um, I think the central bank was extremely orthodox and now no longer is. So you could even imagine um, the fairly substantial reserves being used to um, fund the deficit. Um, I think Agat and Alina discussed this last time, sort of, you know, i.e., I, I could even quote Agat verbatim, you're not supposed to do that. But then, you know, what prevents uh, a, an authoritarian leader from, from forcing the central bank to just hand over its reserves? Nothing. It could do that. Certainly, it would send a very negative signal for sort of management of inflation, price stability expectations. But um, the sort of hierarchy of priorities for President Putin um, would suggest that uh, winning this war, if he can, uh, is a much higher priority than price stability in Russia or the long term viability of the Russian economy. So I don't think there's anything really that stands in the way other than the fact that they will probably exhaust other options. But Unfortunately, and this is something that we need to look at, uh, frankly, when talking at a podcast at the Kiev School of Economics, Russia has resources remaining beyond the National Welfare Fund that it can tap into uh, to fund the war effort. And the central bank reserves are a very big chunk of that. Um, so I think that taboo could go. Another taboo, which is important, I think, is uh, the indexation of uh, social payments of salaries to inflation. And this is a big liability for the Russian government, given that inflation has been high. Last year, they did re-evalue re most payments, both salaries, by over 10% towards the end of the year. There are indications this year, debates about whether that will be as big. Certainly, year-on-year -year inflation will be lower. But the fact that they're debating about whether they will take whatever year-on-year -year inflation ends up being and um, apply that to the increases in payments 
the fact that there's a debate about that suggests to me, as I said at the beginning, they're worried about inflation and they're worried about this fiscal liability. So I think that's another taboo that could go. If inflation picks up again, uh, will they be able to afford to increase uh, pensions and wages? Uh, probably not. Thank you. Um, we're going to get back to the, the reserves question a little bit later in the context of the, the freezing of assets and, and sanctions. Uh, now I kind of want to transition a bit to uh, to the policy debate that is taking place uh, among other places in Washington, D.C., and quiz you a little bit on that because you have a particular insight into that. Um, what kind of measures that have been imposed are people feeling relatively positive about? What are they potentially disappointed uh, over? And then we can jump into uh, details on, on some of them next. Um, we can start with what's what's... I think disappointed people and move on to the positive. Um, already, I was hinting in the previous uh, section at what expectations here in Washington and in, in Brussels, other European capitals might have been about the big bazooka of financial sanctions, including blocking the reserves of the Russian Central Bank, which just seems so unprecedented on such a scale uh, that they thought that it may... Um, at least make it more difficult for Russia to buy and sell uh, and uh, perhaps even create a run on the banks, some sort of financial crisis in Russia. Uh, none of this happened. Uh, and I think the the architects of those sanctions, um, you know, three or four people who were um, working on it over the weekend after February 24th, 2022, uh, would admit off the record to being somewhat disappointed by that. Certainly, they're very good economists. They know what they're talking about. They can now rationalize and, and point at the Fortress Russia strategy. But I think that their expectations would have been um, slightly higher. Um, moving into the slightly more positive realm, which may seem surprising uh, given that this has been in the news quite a lot, but on, on export controls, um, there is evidence all over of evasion. Um, but I think a fundamental point still stands, which is that it is now more expensive uh, for Russia to import um, the most advanced chips, more expensive for Russia to uh, import technology that may help it wage the war. And it is now difficult for Russia to run an industrial supply chain outside the military industrial complex. So the figures that most people who have tuned in will be familiar with is the car industry. But I think this is a really revealing one, uh, something that might have been some sort of growth prospect from Russia, some, some diversification strategy away from oil and gas. And now they just can't get the parts, the inputs that uh, would have gone into car factories in Russia. And so that that's, uh, that sector is sort of is worthless now. Um, so we can debate, I'm sure we're going to get to the efficiency of export controls and how to improve compliance. But the fact that they're there and being applied in the first place, in, in, I would argue most cases, um, makes it, in, it very difficult for Russia to run an industrial supply chain and therefore the prospects of the Russian economy are less thanks to export controls. And then I think the most positive story, while there is circumvention involved as well, is measures to uh, reduce Russia's revenue. Um, and here, I mean, we spent most of this episode talking about Russia's deficit and the finite resources it has at its disposal at this point to, to fund the war effort. Um, this is where I think um, there has been the most success. I think it's also where we've overcome uh, negative expectations of our own abilities. Um, the fact that Germany's economy, 
though facing many problems, and we can compare the difficulties imposed on the European economy to the US economy by this war, certainly much bigger difficulties for Europe's economy. Um, nonetheless, we've overcome, I think, expectations that it would be impossible to diversify away from Russian oil and gas, and also that the the price gap measure, uh, the expectations on that were, 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 were that it was sort of um, a market intervention too far, that it would be too difficult, too technical, too complicated. And there is evidence of circumvention of that too. Um, but uh, in most cases, in most pairings between Russia and new destinations for its oil, the price of a barrel is beneath the $60. Obviously, that has been helped by the global prices coming down. It would be much more difficult to enforce if global prices were that much higher. Nonetheless, the price cap, you can argue, is working Um there is evidence with, with China that the, the average um, price is above. Uh, this is research, of course, from the Kiev School of Economics, which all of us use uh, religiously in Washington. Um, so in with China, it's, it is a little bit above. Arguably, it's because there are resources, uh, services between uh, Russia and China, which um, Western companies uh, are not providing, and therefore uh, the cap doesn't apply. There is a little evidence, I think, um, that companies based uh, within the EU, Greece and Cyprus, are breaking the cap, and so enforcement does need to be improved. Nonetheless, I think that is the biggest success story. All the measures we've come up with to reduce revenue, and they may not even be sanctions in the traditional sense, you know, their their diversification, buying from alternative sources, inventing this new concept of a price cap, which is working better than we all expected. Um, we've had to innovate, uh, but I think that's the biggest success story. On the on the topic of circumvention, uh, it, it seems when one follows this debate, actually on both sides of the Atlantic these days, there seems to be a, a big focus on uh, implementation improvements and on enforcement. Would you would you a think that that's an accurate characterization characterization of the debate, and would you also b think that that's the thing that we should be focusing on going forward for the rest of the year and beyond? Uh, so yes, on both counts. Um, there was even a sort of slogan at the beginning of the year that 2023 is the year of implementation. Um, I don't think that uh, blindly focusing on implementing should stop us from adding measures when they seem appropriate. Um, but I gen generally subscribe to the idea that when you have 10, soon to be 11 packages in the EU, and it's not really done in packages in the US, but at least as many uh, in the US. Um, when you have this already rather complex picture, uh, it does make sense to make it your priority to make sure that all the measures within these packages are being applied appropriately. Uh, I don't think that's, that's a bad idea, um, especially since there is fairly good evidence of circumvention, uh, and, uh, and we know where to look. Um, customs data alone, as I was saying earlier, Russian customs data is not available, but you just have to use the corresponding country's customs data and our own because circumvention evasion starts at home. Uh, it is the case that uh, we're looking mainly at goods that have traveled from a third, from, from let's say an EU member state or the US to a third country and then into Russia. So a good idea to check in with the firms that are sending more of a good to a, a third country um, and then uh, with with the with with the intention of it then being sent on to Russia, um, some of this is improving coordination, improving intelligence. Um, those are cliches at this point, but there are really concrete measures that can be taken um, that I think are rather promising. 
uh, in the EU context, they have a sanctions envoy, which they didn't before, um, uh, Ambassador Sullivan. Um, Ambassador Sullivan's role is not to coordinate the sanctions decision process within the EU. That's done by um, Commissioner von der Leyen's cabinet. Um, he's probably involved, but it's not his role. His role is to go to these third countries uh, and tell them that the EU is not pleased and warn them about consequences. Um, his role also within the EU, I get the impression, is to coordinate um, a harmonization of the penalty structure within the EU for sanctions evasion. Uh, the sanctions evasion is not an EU crime. Um, the EU court of uh, the um, EU prosecutor doesn't have much of a role when it actually it should because it's a cross-border phenomenon. So doing a lot of that work, um, I think, is, is promising and perhaps is to, to listeners will sound like a bit less of a cliche than just improving coordination, improving intelligence. So that's important. Um, and the US is doing um, doing similar things. So it didn't face the same problem of sort of who's in, who's in, who's, who's in charge in the judicial system. Um, because uh, we're not dealing with a, a coordinated policy at an EU level, which then had to be sort of replicated in uh, the EU prosecutor system. In the US, you have the penalties. That's all sorted out and worked out. A lot of this work was done actually through the war on terror. So that's not really what the concern is about. And it's more about coordinating um, different branches of the US government, which know about the technology and know the, fir the firms that may be exporting it. So there's a new task force um, Called the Disruptive Technology Strike Force, made sure I wrote it, wrote it down, uh, which is coordinating these efforts. Um, and I think what really um, motivated people to, to act on this is that they found pieces, components of US, US components in the U Iranian drones uh, that were bombing Kiev. Um, so I think everyone has more work to do. It's not just a European problem, um, uh, but at least the US uh, and Washington is is aware of this, recognizes it, and is doing quite a lot of work to to close these loopholes. Um, so I'd leave it there. Thank you. You you mentioned the, the very important uh, issue slash challenge of third country actors. So I wanted to go into this direction a little bit more. So how can... How can third country actors that uh, are involved in either violations of sanctions or circumventions of sanctions, so the one would be illegal, the other one would necessarily not be, uh, how can they be um, targeted by sanctions? In the US, that uh, you know, brings, uh, brings about the, the question of secondary sanctions. The EU doesn't uh, like them and doesn't do them, but it is apparently discussing some kind of tool in the 11th sanction package that would allow to target third country actors. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, your, your so, view. So off the, off the record, EU visitors to Washington, and there have been many uh, since the beginning of the war, uh, joke about this a little bit because they, they pre-COVID, pre-war, were in the habit of Washington complaining about extra extraterritorial application of US law and uh, secondary sanctions being applied in an uneven and unfair way. And they've, they will joke themselves and have the, the sort of um, self-deprecation necessary to say, well, it's funny, I, I might be changing my mind on this. Um, so you're right that in the EU, there is, there is, a, there is a change. Um, nonetheless, uh, you're right, the secondary sanctions have left uh, a bitter aftertaste. Um, and the US is, I think, I think the, this, this administration in the US, my, my sense of it is that they, they care deeply about 
remaining um, coordinated with the EU on, on sanctions and also with other allies. I mean, we could mention the role of the G7, which did what didn't really have a role in, in coordinating sanctions before, but because Japan wanted to be involved, and then you call it G7 plus because other like-minded economies in the Asia Pacific want to be involved. Um, coordination has become uh, the sort of most important word. And therefore, the US government, perhaps more than it gets credit for and more than previous administrations, does care about hard economic interests in Europe and giving those economic interests time to adapt. So I hear concerns from within the US administration about the perceptions of secondary sanctions and therefore a feeling that they will try everything else possible before going there. It's a sort of anticipation of it being a problem uh, more than Europeans coming and saying, don't you dare do secondary sanctions, because in fact, I've heard them more using this kind of um, humor about their changing their minds on them, given the uh, scale of the task at hand, which is to make sure Russia loses this war. Um, so we're in a sort of gray zone where we're not in secondary sanctions yet, but certainly under the um, total sanctions effort against Russia, you have entities that are not in Russia or Belarus that have been sanctioned. And that's been done both by the US and by the EU. So we're already there. It's not a secondary sanction. Um, but the designations, because of firms that are not in Russia helping Russia in its war effort, we, with that, that's already been breached and we're, we're, there will be more next week, I think. Um, I still get the feeling they, they don't really want to do secondary sanctions. It does then um, the test will come on how you actually, um, whether whether the, whether the lists are enough of a deterrent or whether you need to go further. But I don't sense an immediate appetite to go to secondary sanctions. They're testing out the lists first. Yeah, I think that that's that's my impression as well. So thank you very much for, for your insights uh, on, on this topic. Uh, maybe kind of, you know, shifting to a somewhat different topic and something that was uh, that you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation it's uh, it's uh, Russia's uh, large reserves um, and I think it's fair to say that one of the sanctions measures that most people thought would have a large impact and most people also think was somewhat uh, effective is the is the freezing or uh, or arresting of uh, Russian central bank assets uh, so the first question that I want to ask you is Uh, if we should actually call it freezing of assets, should we call it immobilizing of assets? What is the actual difference and why does it matter? So thanks for asking that question. And it's um, yeah, the, 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 the entire topic is, um, is sad. And I do find myself um, sometimes taking a step back and, and realizing just how awful this war has been. Um, again, this weekend, uh, I was reading a little bit about what's going on. Um, I have had so, despite all of that, the the topic of Russian central the Russia's central bank's reserves has become very interesting to me and has, on occasion, provided a source of amusement. So I hope listeners will 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 understand my my uh, giggling about uh, the topic when you brought it up in that light. Um, so freezing versus immobilization versus blocking. Um, The legislation in the EU, uh, which is the most important player in this, because most of Russia's central bank reserves were stored in the EU, those that were stored outside, in, outside of Russia and in countries that have participated in the sanctions coalition, most of that is in the EU. Um, and the EU legislation on this um, is not 
the EU legislation on the central bank reserves is not a freeze of those assets. It's a block on servicing the Russian central bank through transactions or moving its money around or any way in which the Russian, uh, an EU entity providing a service would help the Russian central bank manage its reserves. So it's a separate piece of the sanctions legislation. Um, and I think it took a little while for everyone to understand the difference or the implications of the different phrasing for this. Um, but the immediate implication, at least for me, when doing my research, is that I found out that uh, as late as November 2022, early December 2022, the US government and EU governments didn't know where all of this money was. So the $300 billion figure. So spoiler alert, they know now, don't worry. But uh, as recently as November, December 2022, they, they didn't know. Um, the um, 300 billion figure came from uh, people like you and me, Ben, looking at available data from the Russian Central Bank on where the uh, reserves were stored geographically and applying the percentages uh, to the total, which is about 550, 600 billion. And you, ca you, you, took the, you took out the countries one by one that are participating in the sanctions coalition and you came up with this 300 billion figure. But then when uh, the US and EU capitals went to look for the money, and I think they started, of course, with their own central banks, because their central banks sometimes provide this service of keeping uh, reserves on behalf of other central banks, they didn't really find uh, anything on that scale. Um, so it transpired that most of it was kept as safe government debt. And I think you know, some people in government might have known this all along, but uh, not everyone did, I'm pretty sure of that. And there was a little debate within the sort of think tank financial journalist community over whether the sanctions were even working. I remember a long series, a very good series in the FT by Martin Sandu saying, well, if we don't know where these where these reserves are, can we even be sure they're blocked? I mean, maybe the Russian central bank under different guises and aliases is actually moving it all around. No, this wasn't the case, um, but I think it was a perfectly pertinent question at the time. And it helped shake the tree and get a task force in the EU to start looking into this and create a self-reporting deadline from member states. And Eureka, towards the end of March, um, most of it turned up in Belgium. Uh, why did it turn up in Belgium? Um, Euroclear provides the service of uh, processing um, payments, uh, bond, the government bond payments. And usually, I think the on maturity, the Russian central bank would simply have told Euroclear, invest it back into safe government bonds, or could you send a little bit back to us? We need, we have some operations to conduct. But that is when the block came into effect. That's where it started working. The government um, bonds were paid on time, um, all these safe governments um, paid on time, uh, and then it got blocked or immobilized in Euroclear, and it's still there. So I do prefer to use blocked or immobilized simply because frozen gives the sense that uh, the individual asset has been located, found, and frozen, whereas the block um, is effective, it's working, but it took a little bit of time for the money to turn up and be immobilized. So a very long-winded answer, but I thought I'd give you the um, journey we've all been on over the past few months. Uh, and the reason it, it was a source of some amusement for me is that I, I wrote about this in, I think, uh, late November. Um, and it was picked up in some of the pro-government Russian press. And the spin they had on it was that the, 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 the decadent West had lost 200 billion of our reserves. Um, this obviously wasn't true, but the, the, the spin was, was amusing.
Well, well, thank you for the for the explanation, and that does uh, indeed sound uh, sound somewhat encouraging um, in terms of sanctions enforcement and and sanctions effectiveness. Now, when when people talk about uh, reserves, uh, very often they distinguish between uh, sanctions addressing reserve stocks, which is what we've just been talking about, and the issue of reserves flows or balance of payments flows that may refill Russia's coffers. And we all know, as you've also also pointed out earlier, that Russia's had these very large uh, inflows of foreign currency because of the energy trade and high prices. Which brings me to this topic of shadow reserves. So maybe you should, uh, you could explain to the audience a little bit what shadow reserves are and what problem we are, uh, in fact, uh, talking about. Yeah, your your question reminds me of something I should have said earlier, which is that the disappointment um, that the architects of the sanctions will admit to on um, blocking the central bank reserves, they will now explain by saying this sort of measure, though huge and unprecedented. It's hard to get it to work against a country with a balance of payment surplus. Why? That The reason is that that surplus will keep currency flowing in, and therefore they don't need in any given period of a few months. It's good that the reserves are there, but they don't actually need them as long as they're taking they're more foreign currency is coming in than, than is leaving the country. And that was exactly what happened with Russia last year. And it's why ultimately this, this measure was was though it is working in the sense that the, the reserves have been blocked, it hasn't had the um, effect on the Russian economy or Russia's ability to buy and sell goods that we might have hoped for. Um, what do we mean by shadow reserves? I'd be interested in your definition, um, Ben. The way I see it is that um, there is a question here because uh, Russia had a record uh, balance of payments surplus last year. And um, I don't think all of those euros and dollars uh, made it to Russia. Uh, I think a lot of it has been stored in the bank accounts of Russian companies or, or at Russian private Russian banks that are based abroad, or maybe on the private uh, in private Russian banks in Russia. Um, but given the way Russia works, its political structures, uh, these banks will do what they are told. And so, if the money needs to be moved around on behalf of the government, it can be. So I think that's what we're talking about in terms of in terms of um, shadow reserves. The record profits from last year, which uh, were probably taken in by Credit Bank of Moscow, Gazprom Bank, and um, the Russian Agricultural Bank. I mentioned those because they're the three that have not been sanctioned by the EU. Um, they probably played a role in managing this uh, liquidity on behalf of the Russian government. I think that's pretty clear. I think the structure might be a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, those three banks are certainly involved. And it is by design that they haven't been sanctioned. And I'm not criticizing anyone here. Um, we do um, still buy, so what, what Europe still buys uh, li- some liquefied natural gas from Russia. Um, we do still want there to be the possibility of sending pharmaceutical goods for, to Russia. Uh, we don't want to be accused by the global south of contributing to inflation in uh, food prices. And that's why we've kept uh, the agricultural bank off the list. So these holes are there by design. And I uh, respect the logic behind that. Um, but I think they have also provided an ability or an opportunity for Russia to manage the so-called shadow reserves. Uh, on, on the question of definition, I would agree with with what you just said. I mean, not not every new foreign asset accumulated through BOP flows is a shadow reserve, but I think if it can be accessed somehow 
by the regime reshored somehow or used for for purposes of the government then then it will effectively turn into shadow reserves now on a related issue and also a very complicated one um so when we and this is becoming more and more of a focus in our work at, at kc institute ukrainian reconstruction and a lot of people then point to the uh frozen slash immobilized uh state assets of Russia, the CBR mostly, uh, as a source of funding, uh, which then brings us obviously from immobilizing reserves to confiscating reserves. And uh, I would like to hear your opinion on this, uh, maybe also on the policy debate that is currently going on uh, in Washington, because obviously this is uh, legally a much more complicated uh, undertaking than uh, a temporary freezing or immobilizing. Yes. Um, so there's, there's a general trend in Washington, which is moving in the direction of doing something, of using the reserves. Again, um, Washington can send a signal, can set an example, but it's not really a U.S. question. There is very little kept in the U.S. Um, and you can perhaps um, celebrate this because the Russians definitely de-dollarized and moved a lot of their savings and reserves, both in the case of the central bank and the National Welfare Fund. They were moved out of the U.S. because it was anticipated that the U.S. would um, react strongly to the invasion of Ukraine or something else that Russia might do, whereas they perhaps did not anticipate that the EU uh, and Japan would participate in such a measure, and yet they did. So. A celebration, first of all, of the fact that we remain coordinated on this and surprise the Russians. Uh, that being said, um, for the US or Canada, because there is a bill that has passed through the Canadian Parliament um, pushing for the reserves to be mobilized and used for Ukraine's reconstruction, for the US or Canada to do this is not as relevant as what might happen in the EU, because that's where it's stored. Many people I talk to in the sort of think tank government community have been on a bit of a journey on this. Um, initially, they were very skeptical and cautious. Um, they liked the sense of um, central bank reserves being somewhat separate, somewhat immune, even more than sovereign assets, which have their own um, type of immunity. Why? Because they felt it was a sort of global safety net, because they liked the idea of central banks, even if they're from adversary states storing money with storing value with each other and just this being a, an underpinning a sort of global safety net for the global economy um that we would be unwise to think we can do with that um i think the economists in uh the us government are still cautious about this uh the lawyers um who often get blamed for coming up with reasons not to do things i think it's the lawyers are being more innovative on what to do. And their argument, which is a convincing one, is that you will reach the end of the road in terms of public opinion tolerating five to six billion being found in the US and also in the EU. The EU's financial contribution to Ukraine has been is often underestimated um, because the US is doing so much on the military side. But there will, you will reach a point when there's less tolerance for uh, this big macro financial assistance to Ukraine. And therefore, uh, it's impossible to just keep that part of 300 billion there without doing anything to it. So that's the direction we're going in. Uh, I think a lot of people who were conservative have changed their minds. I'm sympathetic to the arguments from the economic conservatives about a sort of global safety net, about unknown unknowns, 
to do with um, assets being confiscated um, in parts of the world that uh, aren't necessarily friendly to the US and to the EU. But, but where we do have financial interests and we may sometimes be keeping some of our money. So I'm, I, have, I have sympathy for those arguments, but lawyers are being innovative. And I think the listeners should focus most on what the EU is coming up with. And the EU has actually done more than the US in terms of research on this. What is actually possible? What can we actually do? I mentioned that self-reporting deadline from March when we finally uh, had confirmation of where this money was. This was released with a non-paper from the EU Commission on um, what you could, what you should actually do to it. And they've come up with a sort of middle-of-the-road solution, but which I believe is, you know, it has has the um, benefit of existing, and perhaps would be easier to um, pass by every single member state in the EU. And that would be to invest the money, and interest rates are quite high, and give Ukraine the interest. And you know, given where interest rates are, this is several billion a year. Um, this, I think, I think this is the most simply the most interesting proposal to look at because it's the one the EU has come up with, and that's the EU thinking about the different interests and oppositions that may exist within its own uh, political structure within the in national capitals. And it's probably sl legally slightly easier to do. Um, this does mean, though, that the 300 billion stays and notionally would be returned to Russia at some point. And this is where I think my sort of um, caution and skepticism as an economist runs out. And I, I do ultimately think that um, we're sort of we're sort of beating about the bush by 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 worrying about this, because the response of people who don't want to send the money is, well, Russia will have to pay reparations anyway. So we use this as a sort of um, bargaining chip. You don't, we, you don't get your reserves back until you pay reparations. First of all, reparations will be much bigger than 300 billion uh, if Russia were ever to um, engage in good faith in negotiations about just how much these reparations, just how big they'd have to be. And the notion that um, this regime or something similar to it uh, was something that, you know, I, I don't want to get into criminology and what might happen, but even if you were to imagine some sort of political change in Russia, I don't think it would be so different to the extent that they would happily engage in discussions about reparations. Um, so the notion that this is a bargaining chip for reparations, I think, it's an argument I used to use, but I, I don't anymore because I, I don't think it's convincing. So we're moving in that direction, and I think that the initial response will be perhaps to invest it and send some of the interest to Ukraine. Um, but watch this space because it m may move fast and you may see uh, the money simply being expropriated from Russia and handed over. Very difficult to do. Don't want to underestimate all the difficulties. Um, I mean, Russia could, could notionally sue for the money because it's been taken away from it. The current setup is that um, you have to restore the money in the state it was uh, taken away. Um, so it, I think we are exposing ourselves to a very difficult precedent but the debate is moving in that direction. Um, and uh, well, we'll end on the sad note of even $300 billion not being enough for Ukraine's reconstruction. Uh, being cognizant of time, I have, uh, I think, one final question for you. So you, you outlined where this dis uh, discussion is kind of having, uh, heading right now. Now, there is the one aspect, which is what we can do from a legal perspective. There's the other 
aspect of what we should do. And an argument that is often brought forward in this context is this fear of what kind of ripple effect this would have for global financial architecture. The elephant in the room is kind of China, right? So if we uh, if we confiscate Russian uh, central bank assets, how are other uh, actors, uh, large actors in this uh, global economy uh, going to respond? Uh, the word that comes up then is, is de-dollarization and uh, to what extent we're kind of abandoning the kind of Western dominant over the global financial system that also is very much behind the effectiveness of some of our sanctions. What would be your take on on these concerns? Uh, they are justified. Uh, can yeah. be overcome? I, no, the concerns are entirely justified. Um, on E-dollarization is perhaps too extreme a term, but um, the dollar losing some of its appeal and the acceleration of efforts that already existed in uh, non-aligned and adversary states to come up with alternative systems. Um, those efforts already existed, and you could argue they've been accelerated since the war. The data, if you look at it, I, in, in my opinion, if you look at the data in the right way, there's no evidence of de-dollarization now. So, Russia-China trade is now majority yuan-based, but that's not by choice because uh, Russia's um, the dollars that Russia has access to are precious to it because it doesn't have it doesn't have access to as many, um, and so it trades in China, uh, trades with China in yuan. Even for Russia, I don't think this represents a choice. Uh, using the yuan comes with more constraints, um, and uh, I don't think um, Russia particularly likes that. Um, so when people don't have a choice, when countries don't have a choice, they may be switching to yuan, but when they do have a choice and most countries still do, there's no evidence, at least as far as I can see that trade is moving away from the dollar to a great extent to the euro, uh, from the euro and to a much lesser extent in reserves. There's some very slight evidence that, um, um, non-aligned states are building up, um, reserves in non-dollar, non-euro, uh, um, currencies, but really very slight. And then, you know, we have to read this against last year when a lot of currencies were sliding against the dollar. And so they had to sell uh, their dollar reserves, um, to, 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 um, arrest, uh, the depreciation of their currencies. So I, I really, at this point, don't think there's any evidence that the dollar is losing any of its, um, advantages and um when when you do have the specific case of china russia that isn't by choice um so i think it's really about a precedence that we need to worry about and keeping a close eye on the long-term initiatives of um, adversary states on payment systems central bank digital currencies um that's where our um we should keep our focus um, making sure that uh, the dollar, everything that's made the dollar strong uh, remains there. And then uh, I would even argue being being careful about um, when you deploy uh, the weaponization of the dollar in the way it has been deployed against Russia. Entirely justified here. Uh, but I think, you know, um, it does really need to be the exception rather than the rule when you use this sort of measure. Um, some in Washington are starting to argue that um, it is embarrassing uh, that we've deployed the full bazooka, the big, the, all the financial sanctions, the freezing of the reserves, or the blocking of the reserves, excuse me, for Russia ultimately not to do as badly as we might have hoped. 
I say wait and see. Um, I think most people can understand that Russia is a huge economy and, and cannot be sort of cut off from um, the global economy overnight. But um, I'm ultimately landing in a rather sort of balanced position of saying there's no de-dollarization for now. You need to be careful about the precedents. You need to be careful when you use these instruments. You also need to make sure that people keep engaging with the dollar and the euro for these instruments to work. Um, so it is important to make sure that they remain the preeminent systems. Keeping an eye on what China is doing is important. But you'd also, you could also conclude on um, just how the yuan works, which I didn't um, describe very well a few seconds before, but we're coming to the end of our time. There are capital, capital controls in China. You basically can't really do trade with the Yuan on any huge scale without China's permission. Um, and that is the main advantage of the, the US dollar system, that um, it's much more open than the Yuan is. So I can't see evidence of de-dollarization for now. And sometimes people misuse the statistic of China-Russia trade, but that's because it isn't by choice. Um, Careful about the long-term precedents, though, and there is very good work being done on this by um, Danny McDowell and our own non-resident senior fellow at the um, Atlantic Council, Carla Norloff. So I point people in that direction for a, an alternative and perhaps a slightly more concerning story. But certainly on the on the data, I don't see it yet. Thank you very much. And, and you are correct. We have indeed already reached the end of our time. Uh, thank you, Charles, for this uh, truly illuminating conversation. Um, your insights into several topics, uh, complexities of the sanctions regime, Russia's policy response, as well as the debate going on in Washington, D.C. right now, have really enriched our understanding. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for spending your uh, time with us. I hope that today's discussion has offered you fresh perspectives on the issue of sanctions. If you found this episode informative and wish to continue exploring such vital economic and political issues with us, I encourage you to sign up so you don't miss any new episodes. Uh, for updates, do follow us on Twitter at KSC Institute. We have an exciting lineup of guests and topics waiting for you soon. I'm pleased to announce that KSC Talks is now accessible on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Amazon Music. And this episode will soon join our growing collection on these platforms. Um, you can find all the relevant links in the description of the broadcast and our Twitter feed. Uh, thank you once again for being part of this insightful journey. Thank you, Charles, again for your time and your insights. Uh, this is Benjamin Helgenstock uh, saying until next time.